Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to episode 2 of season 9 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, September 18, 2022. My name is Rudolf and I am, as always, your host here today. And today my guest on this show will be Steve D. from Great Britain, who has written recently his fourth book called Chaos Monk. And just by the title, Chaos and Monk, you might expect that this is quite an interesting mix of Eastern and Western practice and philosophy, but much more Western than you would expect. Well, we'll speak about that a bit later. So I'm glad to have you all back here on the show, all of those who are already regulars of the Thoth Hermes podcast. But of course, and I'm very, very happy, extremely happy to also have new listeners every week. And great to have you here for the first time. And I hope you will return very often. To all of you, I just like to say, well, go to the Thoth Hermes website, because we have several things that you can do there. Thoth Hermes all episodes can be found on that page and that's thothermes.com t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s dot com and with the episodes which of course can be found also elsewhere on all major podcast players even on youtube without video just audio but you can listen to them there but on the website on top you have all those extras the possibility for example to send me feedback feedback with voicemail even or just with an ordinary uh, email info at thoughtservice.com or the contact page on the website. But you have also possibility to see all the show notes and that's very important because now by now they have become a real treasure of knowledge and links to people's websites etc. And with almost Closing up now to 150 episodes, you might imagine that many very interesting people who I've interviewed have mentions there and can be reached through the website. So do not miss out on that. And while you are there, please consider becoming a patron because we need more as ever your support. And um, with one euro or one dollar per episode, you can already start supporting us. That's a Patreon possibility there. You have a Patreon button on the website or you go directly to Patreon and look for the Thought Hermes podcast. Please join those of you who I really want to thank here once again, who have already chosen to become supporters and patrons of this show. You can also, of course, do a one-off donation. There is a donation button there as well. Some people prefer that and have chosen that. Thanks to them as well. It's really, really very important for us to have your support. 
It would also be nice, again, to get music from you, uh, music that we play on the show. You know, in each show, I play three pieces of music. And um, very often I have received music from you, the listeners, from you, the fans who have created their own music and proposed this here. And um, please, even if it has maybe happened once or twice that your messages have gone lost or not be followed up that I am sorry about that. If that happens, please do not give up. I really want your music with me here and play it for all of us who are the listeners of this podcast. So please send me music and even those who have already done so and have been played here. And if you have new tracks, I'll be happy to have you back on the show. Okay, so music now, that's time. The keyword music has been given. And, um, well, you've already heard by my little short intro. Um, this is a podcast on the Western esoteric tradition, and we speak about the Western tradition also today, of course. But there is a, from time to time, we've had that also a link to Eastern traditions. And um, sometimes the question even comes up, and I really want to ask that question often. Is there such a thing like Western or Eastern traditions? Are they, in the end, not the same, but just seen by different points of view? Well, another good question uh, we could maybe try to answer at some point. But having said that, I chose this week to play music, which is clearly from the Eastern tradition. Well, Chaos Monk, uh, uh, we think immediately of Buddhistic, Buddhistic monks, of course, and Zen music, etc. Well, kind of. It's traditional Buddhist music from world music that I would like to play here today. So um, let's start with uh, an artist called, well, he must himself be a tra transition from West to East because his name, artist name is Ronnie Nyogetsu Seldin. I have no idea if I pronounced that completely correctly. Ronnie Nyogetsu Seldin uh, performing on the traditional flute uh, a piece called Ajikan. So we'll start with that, our music program for today. And I hope you will enjoy the show just as much as I have been enjoying putting it together.
Aji Khan, a piece for traditional flute performed by Roni Njogetsu Seidin. And also later on in this episode, we are going to hear some other traditional Buddhist music and I truly hope you will enjoy that. Okay, so Steve D. Steve D, he is from Great Britain, as you will hear clearly when he will speak. And um, he has written those four books lately, all being, I would call them transitional books between transitions. And that's exactly the person he is, because he came up um, of a, out of a Christ, very Christian family, had even tendencies to become a Christian monk. And then, well, everything came differently. He'll gonna tell us all about this. And when I looked into his first book, um, and I will put his books also, of course, on the website with links to where you can get them, because they are really great. Um, in his first book, uh, Andrew Philip Smith, uh, writes a little intro to that book. And I would like to read you a little excerpt from that intro and then going right away into the interview with that, because you'll see it's related. Um, so before I read that little text to you, I just like to point out to you that like always in the middle of the interview, after about 33 minutes this time, we are going to have a musical break with more traditional Buddhist music today. And uh, so stay tuned for that as well. But for the moment, I will now read you those two paragraphs from the intro um, by Andrew Philip Smith, a friend also of Steve D's. And then we'll go and ask Steve right away in the interview if all that Andrew says there really should be seen like that. Here we go. From the fragments of biography given in this book, we should conclude that Steve D is a weird and fucked up guy. At the age of 14, he became a born again Christian. Then he began training as an Anglican priest. He had uncertainties about his sexuality. He had a breakdown. And now he has an altar in his house in Devon with gods on it. He's involved in a magical movement that is best known for the technique of wanking to homemade sigils and using cartoon characters instead of gods. Yet he comes over as very sane. It is this combination that I particularly like in Steve's work. I haven't yet met him, but I sense he is the guy you can have a drink with in a pub who shares every out there marginal, no, liminal interest that you have. He's less fidgety than you, less argumentative, more laid back. He can talk easily on all sorts of subjects, but when you speak, he listens. This is what comes over in these short essays. And although he has a pinch of salt for every out there idea and a joke for every wayward esoteric author, you sense that he had not just read what they write, but he has listened. Well, I think that's great things to say about somebody and we'll go and verify all that right away. Come with me and let's meet Steve D. Here comes the interview. 
And now, after what you have just heard from an excerpt from the book, we are with the person himself, Steve D. It's a great pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Um, it's great to have you and uh, to speak about your work, your personality that we just heard a little bit of in that little intro by Andrew. And um, great, great to speak to you. Hello. Hello. Th thanks, Rudolf. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I look forward to it. Good. Um, well, Steve, um, you have recently published your fourth book, right, which is called Chaos Monk. And actually, uh, that's what made me aware of you, to be honest. The first three I had somehow missed, so too bad for me, but I've caught up in the meantime. Um, but the, the, alone the title Chaos Monk, of course, triggers hundreds of thoughts at the same time. And I believe that's that's also why you called it like that. Um, but then when you search a little bit, um, uh, your, I don't know if it's your background, but uh, what turns up is all those kinds of interesting combinations of things that you wouldn't expect, like the chaos monk and your blog being called the blog of Baphomet. So that's, that's again, another, another two things that you hardly hear together or, uh, agnostics progress, your very first book, um, because of course it makes you think of pilgrims progress somehow, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is intentional. And then you have chaos craft, uh, your book that you co-authored with Julian Vane, chaos and craft. Again, there is not opposites maybe, but still two things that you hardly hear together. So is that you is, are you just provoking or is this way of seeing things in, in a very holistic way or why, why do you do this? Sure. It's a good question. And it's a, a really good observation that maybe I haven't noticed before. Um, I think there probably is something slightly provocative about it. Um, but I think if you ask anyone who know, knows me well, they would say that there's probably a, a trickster, uh, slightly provocative dimension to who I am. Um, but also I think there is a liminal uh, sense to who I am as well, that I think in my own life, whether it's through um, esoteric work, all my work as a psychotherapist, um, an attempt to integrate apparent opposites and to bring things together in myself um, and in my work and in my spirituality um, that do seem um, like binaries, but maybe aren't when you bring them closer together. Or I'm really interested in the question of when you let those whole polarities have a conversation with each other, um, how do they change? How does it change our perception of them? So I think, yeah, it's a good observation. And I think um, it informs uh, a, a kind of a profound and a deep aspect of what I'm trying to work on in myself, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly also dialectical somehow, because then uh, out of those two objects comes a third, a new option, right? Mm, yeah, the synthesis point or, or, or even, I think I talk in the new book, about dialectics, but also dialogics. And, and in dialogical thinking, we maybe don't rush towards the synthesis. We allow the differences to sit in dynamic tension with each other and to see what emerges from that tension. So I think I'm, yeah, part of me is 
um, interested in the alchemy of what those tensions and those dynamics um, kind of provoke in us uh, and also, you know, in society as well. Yeah. And in groups and in friendships. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into that in more depth uh, in, in the course of this interview, I hope. Um, let, let's go a bit to your biography, because of course that, that was provocative, what Andrew said about you in that forward. Um, but um, let's talk about that a bit. Still, it is quite interesting, the little I know about your personal past, and I hope you'll tell us a bit more about that here today, is that you have gone indeed uh, through certain stages in life. Uh, uh, that are very changing and we have known a lot of stages that uh, people in regular life stay in and uh, do not move on and this moving on is very interesting I think so let, let's start at the beginning where you want to start uh, uh, when did this whole spiritual matter start to matter for you yeah yeah it's um It's quite early on, you know, I'm, I'm 53 now. And, um, and, uh, when I was about 11, 10 or 11, uh, my family uh, had immigrated to Australia, um, from the UK. Um, and so we were living, uh, in, on the, uh, in a place called the Gold Coast, um, in Queensland, in Australia. And, um, if you know that part of the world, it's quite a, a hotbed of sort of, at least culturally it was then of kind of spiritual groups, a lot of yoga groups, um, Hare Krishna's on the streets, a lot of sort of, uh, golden yeah. dawn as well was very strong in that part of the world at the time. Oh, right. See, I didn't, I didn't know that. And, right, um, right. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, my mom had done yoga with, um, had done yoga when she was pregnant with me. And as a result of that, there were some yoga books in our household. I come from, a very non-religious home. Uh, my family are very working class. My dad was a bricklayer. My grandfather was a carpenter. Um, but I picked up these yoga books when I was about 11 and I just was entranced by the idea that you could do something with your body that produced some sort of change in consciousness. Um, and so that sort of began a journey of digging through the school library's religion section and picking up books by Lobsang Rampa, you know, and, um, just introductory texts on Buddhism, uh, and some, um, kind of, um, Raja yoga type things. And I was getting into that, um, as a young teenager, uh, much to the despair of my, um, my dad, Uh, who didn't understand me at all, uh, bless him. And, um, and then at the same time, I was very into surfing because we were living in a very popular surfing area. And um, right. I was meeting lots of surfers who were very, very into quite evangelical forms of Christianity. And um, oh. so I had these two sort of tensions. I was mixing with all these Christians who were quite conservative and very um, convinced that their specific path was the right one, while at the same time exploring all this kind of um, Bhakti yoga stuff and Hatha yoga stuff. Um, 
And eventually, um, when my family returned to the UK when I was about 16, um, I eventually got involved with a church um, in in Cardiff, which is in South Wales in, in the UK. Um, and uh, I think I was looking for certainty. I was looking um, sort of for clarity. Um, in a way, you know, I was, I was a very introverted child. So I, I was, you know, I found making friendships difficult and, and obviously moving schools a lot and moving countries kind of continents even. Yes. Yeah. Accentuated all that loneliness. And I think the church provided a very sort of ready environment for that. And because I'd come from this very working class family, but was, by disposition, quite intellectual and and very uh, stimulated by intellectual and spiritual ideas. Um, I quickly came up with the idea that once I left school, I would go and study theology, um, probably with a view to becoming either a pastor or a a priest in the the Anglican church, like the Lutheran church, you know, the Episcopal Church. So, yeah. Um, so I went and did a degree in theology at quite a conservative um, seminary in London uh, when I was about nineteen, and that was great. You know, I on one level I look back at that and I feel very privileged, and it was a very intense experience of about two hundred and fifty people arguing about the problem of evil over food and, you know, ending up with having almost having fist fights over theological differences. So it was very um, entertaining and stimulating and people were lovely and very accepting, you know, um, but sounds like the name of the rose somehow. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> and actually there were some really odd people like in the name of the rose as well. So <laughs> a lot of vulnerable people and a lot of, people who were working through their own stuff. Um, oh, thankfully, yeah. thankfully there were no apocalyptic murders. Um, <laughs> uh, but there, but there was, there was certainly a lot of people trying to find themselves. Um, so I was there and I started, it, that's when things started falling apart for me, um, from a faith perspective. You know, I was, I think all the earlier exploration of yogic things and more esoteric things and meditation, um, I, I was really struggling to view Christianity in a very narrow way, the way that this sort of seminary was promoting. Um, and then I think um, it was during my studies that I came across the work of Carl Jung for the first time. And, you know, the, um, that great Hexenmeister, Carl Jung, um, his ideas about the collective unconsciousness, synchronicity, um, and, and the Gnostics kind of opened a doorway for me um, into um, initially trying to explore whether there were ways I could remain within Christianity and, but have a more esoteric version of it. Um, but eventually a couple of years after leaving there, I had a bit of a breakdown when I was there. I had a bit of a mental health crisis, um, which thankfully, uh, through the help of people there, I I was able to manage. Um, but after leaving, 
um, that college and, you know, completing my studies. But um, a couple of years afterwards, um, I began I began becoming much more interested in esoteric ideas um, and trying to integrate these different parts of my story about um, meditation, yoga, and also a lot of the biblical imagery and the work of Jung. So all this stuff was kind of swirling around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, my partner started studying tarot with a friend. And um, I, I was probably, this is probably about 26, 27 years ago. And, and that I, I was, I was fearful of that initially because I didn't know what it was, but that introduced me to kind of the hermetic Kabbalah. And then that was like a gateway drug into all this, these other things that have happened. Um, but yeah, it was that journey of trying to integrate and actually the Kabbalah and kind of hermetic ideas um, seem to be a good synthesis point between the East and the West, between, you know, some kind of Christian, right. Rosicrucian almost imagery and alchemical, Western alchem- alchemical ideas, but at the same time bringing in yoga and meditation and those kind of what we might call Eastern technologies. Um, yeah. So that, that was kind of my starting point in all of this stuff, really. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing this with us. I have a couple of questions uh, more in a general view uh, mm-hmm. on what you said, because of course it's some things are almost like a pattern when you do interviews like that regularly. And um, I wonder, I have a theory. I wonder what you think about that. Um, you did not have a spiritual background in your family, but you, you had it in yourself and you grew into that. And I, I get the impression one of the reasons why um, occultism, esotericism in the West is so much spread in the English-speaking countries, especially in North America, is because um, those peoples are very spiritual by their roots because their initiation initiation in a way to get into that new country and to spread the word there so to speak was motivated by spirituality and that's why they are more open to what esotericism has to offer um and on the continent, we lost that at some point, whatever the reason, historical reasons are. So what would you, what do you say to that? Because I, I'm always fascinated that even of this podcast broadcasting out of little Austria, 85% of the listeners are North American uh, and 10% UK and Australia, you know? So uh, it's, it's not a language question alone. It's a question of search and spirituality. How is your personal experience with that? Being in a spiritual, coming from a spiritual movement in yourself, walking into esotericism, hermeticism, etc. Is that a path that is a very common path in your experience? Or how do you see that theory of mine? Yeah, it's really, I, I think your theory historically is a really good one because I think, mm. for example, you know, Britain is largely defined by the Reformation and the Reformation mm-hmm. itself was a protest against 
a certain expression of orthodoxy in the, in terms of you know the the Latin Catholic Church at that time. Um, right. And and it's one of the things that kind of came up in Chaos Monk for me was looking at why monasticism started. Um, you know, um, at the point in which Constantine, um, embraced, embraced superficially, at least Christianity, and therefore monasticism could be seen as a revolt against the mainstream or, or exoteric religion. Um, yeah. Against the takeover of, of religion by the state, so to speak. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, St. Anthony and the early monks heading out into the Egyptian desert was to find a more Gnostic direct experience of the numinous or the, the, you know, mystery, however we want to express that. And one of the ideas that I play around with a little bit in, in the book is the idea that, um, when the reformation um, led to the disillusion of the monasteries because, uh, you know, Henry VIII and also versions of that on in continental Europe wanted to basically grab all the real estate of the monasteries and the money. Um, yeah, sure. So that monastic impulse was suppressed and people weren't allowed to do that. But then really quickly, we have the emergence of esoteric orders like the Rosicrucian manifestos and the birth of Freemasonry. And then slightly further on, you know, the, the kind of first occult revival with the, you know, the hermetic order of the golden dawn. So yes, you can almost see these orders as being um, like the collective unconscious trying to find a way for those of us who are wanting to pursue a more intense direct unorthodox path that these these um esoteric orders almost became a new version of monasticism or a new expression of that impulse perhaps absolutely um which reminds me i believe it was your very first book the heretics journey where uh, you talk about spiritual free thinking so is that is that, is that correct yeah. Um, um, which is a term I, I really, I really liked because I think a lot of, I'm personally very much involved in hermeticism and Freemasonry, but more from the esoteric point of view. So I'd rather call myself a hermeticist personally, right? And free thinking there in spirituality is of course core to the, to the matter. Mm. So I think we should move on in your biography a bit because we, we were at the moment that you had kind of left theology and classical theology, but we were not at chaos, at chaos magic yet. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so lead us on a bit further in your life. Yeah, sure. So I think, um, so my partner and I, we moved from London, um, uh, up to where we live now, which is in Devon in the UK near Cornwall. Um, which is a very sort of people associate it with, you know, paganism and witchcraft and, and a very sort of earth-based um, way of looking at and, things. And Tristan and Tristan. Yeah, uh, all, yeah exactly. Tin, you know, we have a place called Tintagel, which is related to yeah. Arthur and Glastonbury is only an hour or so up the road. So, you know, it, right. it's a very rich 
sort of area. Um, and I first, when I first started this whole esoteric path, I think the first thing I got interested in was druidry. Um, and, and, and I think partly that was because I come from a Celtic country. I'm from Wales. And so mm-hmm. that sort of idea of a, um, a Celtic form of shamanism appealed to me, but also as you probably are aware of, you know, given your interest in hermeticism, a lot of the early Druid orders sort of integrated the pagan and the Christian alongside each other and their hermeticism, you know, and, and what was very inspired by like a synthesis or again, that meeting point between two things that look like they might be contradictory, but they were allowed to sit in tension and definitely, you know, and the subsequent Druid orders, um, both the, hermetic ones and then subsequently the more neo-pagan ones um that was a that was really interesting to me um my friend john michael Greer would love to hear you say that because that's all he he could keep saying that uh, and a lot of people are not enough aware of what you were just saying absolutely yeah and uh, you know we could call it a type of mesopaganism where you know mm-hmm. if, you, if you've got the ancient paganism and we've now got neo-paganism that mesopaganism, that in-between space, um, yeah. you know, is really fascinating. It's very fascinating for me, you know. Um, Definitely. So, so I, I was involved with that and I was exploring some of that, that sort of path. But I, I think I quickly became aware of the fact that I deconstructed my Christian faith, you know, in order to become um, an occultist. Um or to walk that path. And therefore I was reluctant to kind of re-enter a belief system that kind of required me to behave myself basically. Um, and I think, and so, you know, I, you know, as you're, as you're well aware, you know, the, the British Isles were very, very spoiled for having a very rich, kind of occult and esoteric history, um, you know. Oh, certainly it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for me, you know, because uh, I was, you know, born in the late 60s, um, I was a child of the 70s and the whole kind of punk rock sort of impulse um, in 1976, 1977. Um, Although I came to it later, I liked that kind of rebellious spirit, the kind of anarchic sort of spirit, and for me, when I eventually came up across kind of chaos magic, probably uh, you know over twenty years ago, um, it suddenly it clicked for me very quickly. You know, it was, you know, in reading the early work of people like Phil Hine and then Peter Carroll, I found a sort of um, a way of viewing esoteric practice that was less reliant on believing in metaphysical worldviews that. You know, I, I could see really, I could see value in them and I could see psychological richness in them, but I was reluctant to become a believer of anything really. 
Yeah, I think it would be a good moment. We had both Phil Hine and Pete Carroll actually here on this show in earlier in earlier episodes. And um, I'm very proud of having had Pete because he rarely does interviews. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, we made it clear then, but this might be a good moment because it fits exactly for me into your biography. To, and you also, I believe you say it in the book Chaos Monk, that chaos magic does not at all mean chaos it needs a very high discipline of mind and practice etc uh, um, so maybe you with your words and with what you say in the book you could stress that and 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 make it clear because it's also important for for the link you then make to monasticism and etc yeah, it, it's interesting. A good friend and, and a teacher of mine, Mog Morgan, who I think you've had here as well. You oh, know, yeah. Um, you know, Mog kind of says, has said a number of times, I don't know why we call it chaos magic because we're all chaos magicians, you know. So I think that, that, yeah. that, <laughs> I know that saying of his, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of creative, dynamic, um, improvisational, um, way of doing um, magical activity is is common to a lot of paths. I think I think chaos magic has a specific history. You know, it's almost a tradition in its own way now, and um, certainly in relation to organisations like the IOT and the Temple of Psychic mm -hmm. Youth. You know, and and other things like Z Cluster in the past. Yeah. You know, you know, we have our own history, and uh, and I think there are certain kind of aesthetics that go with chaos magic in people's minds, um, and I think I, I think some of the accusations that get thrown at chaos magic are legitimate because people can be superficial and consumerist and um, and not kind of do the the deep study that kind of real occult kind of maturity and initiatory maturity requires. But I think there is a deeper, there are deeper versions of chaos magic um, that, you know, you can hopefully proceed into when you, if you stick with it. And that is true for almost any of those orders or movements. In fact, you have maybe, maybe, ceremonial magic attracts more people who are, have a certain vanity if they go the wrong path, you know, uh, in chaos, it's other things that, that people are attracted to. Mm. Uh, I think no, none of those movements are free of those dangers. You, you also said that brings me back to a question I noted when you spoke about your background in the, in, in the theology studies, that there were a lot of people who were trying to find themselves, you say, and who were working their own paths. That's the saying that I noted. Um, now, in what is that different to what happened afterwards? Because uh, people trying to find themselves, well, even this famous Gnosis Yotan, of course, means exactly that, but working out their own path, that means exactly to me what a lot of people do in occultism. Would you, would you see it like that? What, what, is, what was you who made both experiences uh, where it, where lies the difference in the seminary environment as opposed to, for example, chaos magic or other experiences you made? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And and I think f- for me, I think that those people at the seminary were definitely, we're, we're all trying to heal our pain or those things that are, you know, dissonant in our, in our lives or in our histories. Um, but, um, sorry, my dog's howling in the background. <laughs> no um, worries. He, he has yeah. the answer probably. That's yeah, right. probably, yeah. probably. <laughs> but I think, I, I think going back to your comment earlier about spiritual free thinking, I, th- you know, for me, they were trying to find those answers within a more exoteric kind of dogmatic um, kind of orthodoxy. Dog, I was, yeah, yeah. I was going to say dogma probably, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. an orthodoxy, <laughs> which, which, you know, if we were going to use another binary, we might talk about a more right-hand path kind of form of spirituality in which, you know, they the, the, the believer adopts a more childlike position in relation to those dogmas in order to receive a certainty, a blessing. And I, you know, I can sympathize with that position, but, but it was never going to be mine. And I think, I think what esotericism, um, whichever path usually requires us to ultimately take a radical degree of responsibility for our own spirituality. Um, of course, when you join an order, or you um, begin walking a path, you might look to it in a similar way that an orthodox believer might do, you know, as you're a neophyte or a novice and you're in the, but eventually you're going to have to let go of that and, mm-hmm. and realize that, you know, becoming a, a, a master of the temple or an ipsissimus, you know, even, you know, whatever those things mean conceptually is to take a radical degree of, um, responsibility for your, your soul's welfare, you know, and, um, and to be, you will be deemed as a heretic probably by most believers and even by people within the magical community. Um, you know, um, I've lost lots of friends because of the path that I've walked and, um, that's Mm -hmm. okay because I had, I had a choice in the matter, but it was a choice that I wanted to embrace. And um, is there dogma in occultism? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you define it? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I think there are certain orthodoxies that we talk about, you know, and um, and it's really interesting as we're thinking more globally now and, and looking at different magical paths. If we take, for example, the idea of banishing, you know, and, and that's that, you know, on the basis of the Golden Dawn and the work of his Israel Regardi, that became like an orthodoxy, didn't it? You know, that, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. At, um, and, but it's only or what it is worse, but it became, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and then that kind of also was perpetuated by things like Gardnerian Wicca, you know, and, and because, and that's, you know, that's great. I, I don't have a problem with, good ritual frameworks but at the same time there are certain traditions that would say i remember reading um being shocked by phil hines book the i think it's the pseudonomicon the one that's about mm-hmm. the work of hp lovecraft and yes and phil said you can try and banish these things if you want to but best of luck with that you know it's kind of like 
you know, you're, I think, I think there's something about the ritual process as a way of aligning with the goals and, and, and then at the end of a ritual, trying to re-enter mundane space. I think those, I think the, the beginnings and ends of rituals are really important, but Mm. um, when we talk about banishing, then um, the whole point of the work is to change ourselves. And so these things are going to continue with us. Um, So I, you know, I, you know, and I think, um, I think it's good to question those orthodoxies. Um, but, but I guess it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like improvisation in music, you know, before you can improvise, you need to learn your scales and you need to practice and you know, need to know the form and the finger positions, et cetera, et cetera. And similarly, I think a good grounding in, you know, the golden dawn literature or, you know, whichever path one chooses druidry or, you know, um, and then more free form forms of sorcery or esoteric experimentation. They, I think they become more possible when you have, you've really established that core language. Absolutely. That's very true for chaos magic, I believe. And even though I'm, I'm not very practically acquainted with that, but, uh, and your comparison to music is absolutely right. It's in, your technique and your mastering of the instrument is crucial to be able to improvise in a good way. Absolutely. Well, great stuff, I believe. Thanks, Steve, for that first part of the interview. And as promised, we are now going to break with another piece of traditional Buddhist music from the world. Uh, that's also the name of a CD which, where, where you can find that type of music by one sound, I believe it is. So what are we going to hear now as the second piece? The second piece is uh, sung by a congregation of Cha'an Meditation Group. Yes, at the Cha'an Meditation Center, actually. And the pieces they sing, it's two pieces uh, lined up, one after the other, the one is called the Four Great Wows and the second, the Three Refugees. So enjoy real life recording by this made at the congregation of the Chan Meditation Center. And after that, we will, of course, immediately return to go to Steve D again and continue our exciting conversation on his path from chaos magic through Zen to all other types of Western traditional magic forms or um, hermeticism, etc. He's really a very interesting and very cultivated guy. And um, after the end of the interview, last piece of traditional Buddhist music for today, and that is being pulled by, played by an orchestra of the Kampagar Monastery, um, Tibetan monastery and the title of the piece they play is Dorje Furba. Um, don't ask me the front translation. I'm incapable of giving it to you. But it's it's very traditional live music recording. It's it's interesting. It's something completely different from what you usually do here on the show. And I think that's good and important to always a little bit open your mind to other and new things. Right? Good. Well. What does not change that after the third piece of music, I will come back 
and will tell you who will be my guest next week. Okay, so now we're here, the congregation of the Chan Meditation Center with four great wows and the three refugees. Enjoy. Yeah. Uh-huh.
let's move back to your latest book, The Chaos Monk, because um, somehow um, this word monk in there, and we touched a little bit in it in the, in the first part, but um, maybe I'm wrong, but we were still a bit in your biography close to the to the to the religion part when we spoke about monastism and when you speak about it in that book chaos monk it is of course making reference to to the early centuries to the early middle to the middle ages etc and monasticism there but it means something completely different and you move it over of course to eastern uh, monasticism to 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 monks like zen monks etc and zen plays and buddhism in, in altogether plays a high the important part in in that book, right? So mm. could you explain a bit more about that for our audience who have not yet read the book, uh, let them know a bit of what it is about and what it means for you? Sure. Um, so my, my kind of going back to my biography a little bit, you know, when I was yes. um, at the this um, seminary, um, before I met my partner, I was quite close to I was considering becoming a monk within the Christian tradition, um, you know, a celibate Catholic tradition. Then, um, well, it was it was Anglican, but it was very kind of so. In 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 England and in Britain, we have a thing called the Anglo-Catholic version of the Anglican Church. So it's mm. kind of a hybrid. Although it's the Church of England, it's a hybrid up between Protestantism and Anglican and Catholicism. So I think the whole Anglicanism, sorry to say that, uh, is a hybrid anyway. It's for a, if you know Lutheranism in the European way, uh, you always feel very Catholic when you go to an Anglican church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 so when you had the Oxford movement, which was part of the Anglo-Catholic revival in um, England, um, you know uh, the. Uh, the, the monastic orders were kind of reborn uh, as ah, a result okay. I, of that. I wasn't aware of that, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you had the birth of like a Franciscan, the Society of St. Francis, which was a Franciscan order, but within the Anglican Church and lots right. of other groups. And um, so I was going to become a Franciscan monk or was thinking about it. Um, but for, for me, uh, when I got involved in chaos magic, and I was reading Pete Carroll's book, Liber Chaos, which is, you know, one of his, um, mm. one of his best Founding books. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's about yeah. really foundational. And in the, in, in yeah, the very yeah. back of that book, in the appendix, he talks about a thing called chaos monasticism in which the magician chooses to intensify a period of magical practice for a, a given period in which, um, they undertake a higher degree of rituals per day and they dedicate any kind of sexual experience to the goal of that work. Um, and they, they do things like carry a specific staff or adopt an outward insignia. And, and, and I, I think, you know, um, that made me smile when I read that. And, and for me, when, at, at the time I was a member of the IOT, uh, I'm not, I, I am not at the moment, but, um, but undertaking a chaos monasticism was part of the grade, um, structure within the IOT. And so I did one of those, um, and 
for me, it kind of took me back to the idea of bring, how do we bring about spiritual intensity in our own lives? Um, how do we, you know, what was the earliest impulses of those people when Constantine became a Christian and those people were driven out into the desert seeking a more intense experience of gnosis or, you know, revelation? Um, you know, how does that impulse relate to, you know, Hindu monasticism or sannyasi or, or Buddhist monastic traditions or... Um, or even other things like the Sufi tradition within Islam, you know. Um, so this common idea of seeking religious intensity. Um, so I kind of tracked the history of that. And, and then, as we were talking about earlier, the birth of some of the early esoteric orders like the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. Um, but then also, you know, things like uh, the Abramelin working, um, and uh, within Chaos Magic, there's also another working called Liber KKK. These, yes. these periods it kind of, of replaces the Abramelin working, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's a kind mm -hmm. of chaotic, ver more chaotic version of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it's this idea of turning up the heat on your magical practice, you know, um, and 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 also the idea of a magical retreat this idea of you know retreat coming away from perhaps your normal mundane life and thinking you know what do i want in my life um but also i think there's for me and i, I think i was something i was trying to think about in the book i don't know if i was successful but i was trying to think about it is um this idea about what do we seek through our magical work and 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 part of my thinking about it is that if we go deep into our magic the things that we thought we wanted maybe are no longer the same and and so the magic itself strips us back and so the earliest goals of um, sex drugs and rock and roll maybe or whichever version of that you want you know, eventually the magic, the, the alchemical process of doing the work, hopefully if it's, if it's doing its job, asks us to rethink what we want out of life and to also think about our death. Well, first, I think you do make it clear, right? It became clear to me, at least. Um, and uh, I think it, it's very true. And it brings us back to what we said at the very, very beginning of this talk, that um, it's dialectical in the end. Also, this is very dialectical, the achievement of another view on life and death, on, on the, in, the inner alchemy is a... To me, at least, the dialectical process and, and mm. keeps keeps being it. And um, I mean, um, this is a this is a classical question, probably. But I, as you are evoking uh, both sides of of the same coin, as I've seen them, uh, I love that picture in your book. I have it here on the screen, and I'll show it also with your if you if you allow me to show it on the website on on the show notes because the Buddha with the chaos magic symbol on on it. I I, I think that's it's it's such a lovely. Um, 
compression of what you're saying in that book. But um, this crossover, is it the crossover between East and West? Or is it basically the same thing, the one, like the Hermeticist would call it, that we both talk about it with different words, maybe? But how do you see that? Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. You know, I, I've got a friend who um, who is a a bishop within the liberal Catholic Church. You know, within the the Theosophical kind of esoteric tradition. Um, and he was talking about Theosophy to me, and he was talking about um, Westerners embracing so called Eastern spiritual paths. And he said the problem for most Western people um, is that that the Eastern tech, they haven't found their ego in order to let go of it. Um, you know, so, so them rushing into Eastern forms of ego deconstruction um, is potentially perilous because they, they, they don't have a sense of who they are to begin with, you know, so they, they don't know what they're letting go of, um, mm. which I find kind of interesting. And, and you were talking earlier about, um, the grail quest, you know, and the grail kind of imagery. And for me, I can't, you know, whether it's my Christian past or um, my own desire to balance the, um, the idea of the ego as a potentially positive force, but also the need to let it go. I, I keep coming back to the idea of the grail because, you know, when we have a grail, we have, we have a container that has a shape, but for it to become functional, it needs a space within it. And so in the same way for us as occultists, for me, I think we need the ego. We need a sense of personality and to, to function in the world. But I think the deeper truth is that for that, for that self to become a grail, it also needs to have emptiness and fluidity at its center. And I think, um, yeah, for me, that is one of the, I suppose, keys to, to what we're, we're trying to do. Both have form, but also emptiness at the same time. Sounds like a very intelligent explanation of the platonic split, right? Mm. Uh, in a way. Yeah. Um, you said something about spiritual intensity, and that's a term that turns up often in your writings, right? Um, I'd love you to, to maybe define that a little bit more. What, what is spiritual intensity? That could be many things, but what is it for you to, so to speak? Yeah. And I think, I think you're touching on Rudolf. You're saying something that's really important that I think what spiritual intensity for, for an, an occultist or a magician mm is going to be unique to that person because orthodoxy will prescribe what it should look like for you in that childlike okay. position. But actually for us as hopefully as spiritual grownups, um, we, we do have to take responsibility for, um, for what we, um, for what we want. And, for me, that intensity is about, um, I think I taught in all my works, um, in all the books, I, I keep coming back to the, um, the formula of the Gurdjieff work, you know, and, 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 it, and in the Gurdjieff work, 
he and uh, you know other people like Uspensky and J.G. Bennett and people like that talk about this fourth way in which we hold together, work with the body, work with the emotional center, and work with the mind. And rather than them being split off, you know, the the magician brings them together into a fourth way of, you know, which Gurdjieff called the way of the sly man, you know, this way of being in the world, but in an awakened, a more awakened state, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. And, and um, this idea of not being asleep, you know, to, um, you know, and, and, you know, that also ties into perhaps, you know, ideas, you know, like um, the, the temple of sets, you know, articulation of kefir, you know, this idea of becoming, yep. you know, and, yeah. and I think yeah. that there's value in that, you know, this idea of using every aspect of one's life as a, as a vehicle for becoming, you know, so your, your family life is a, a way of becoming your, your social life, your working life. So these aren't things aren't, you know, I, I was, using the word mundane and non-mundane as if they were split off. And and that's a, that's a false dualism in some ways. And, you know, because the aim is hopefully, and I think that's the work of the magician is to find a way of making everything sacred. Well, the hermeticist in me says it's not dualism. It's, it's polarity in that case. And it's just a, a shade of, a shade of mundaneity if mm. it's non-mundane or mundane, right? It's it's the same thing, but in different degree, to a different degree. Yep. Um, um, is your work nowadays, or maybe in a more general question, but maybe you could answer it personally and more generally, about is your work nowadays solitary work or is it still group work or is solitary work something that's well a monastery is on one hand very solitary but at the same time a group so um this feels sometimes like an opposition um how do you live it and how do you see it in general yeah i think i I was thinking about the nature of magical orders, you know, when I, when you asked me for my biography and, 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 you know, the things that I have been involved in and, um, I am loosely involved in. So for example, you know, I, I'm still a member of the order of Bard, Bards, Ovates and Druids. Um, right. not that I attend any meetings or, or see anyone else, but I've done their training. Um, I was a member of the Illuminates of Thanateros, you know, for 10 years. So um, I have worked very intensely in a group magical environment, um, but um, I, I felt I wanted to move on from that. Um, and I'm still a member of um, Amokos. You know, I mentioned Mog Morgan before and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the, the, Ridic- Maybe you quickly say what the Mokos is because yeah. everyone here might be aware of that. Yeah, so it's it's the rather ridiculously monikered, um, um, the ancient magical order of the Knights of Shambhala, you know, so yeah. Um, yeah. which was uh, an East-West uh, Tantra Indeed. tradition mm-hmm. um, founded kind of um, in the, I think it was the very early 80s, um, that was generated from 
um, Mike McGee's encounter um, with Dadaji Mahendranath, who was a Westerner who allegedly, as the story goes, um, met with Alistair Crowley and Crowley said, go to the East. And um, mm. Dadaji went and lived in India and um, was initiated again, allegedly, I think he was, um, into a number of tantric traditions. And Mike, um, Mike was a, uh, a senior student of Kenneth Grant's during the 70s. Um, and um, Kenneth, as we know, um, had his own um, influences from Eastern sources, um, which are, you know, are, are in books like Alistair Crowley and the Hidden God and At the Feet of the Master, I think, is another one of them. Um, so uh, Amokos is a, it was a relatively vibrant order in the 1980s and into the early 90s, but then really um, it's much more of a loose network now for people who are inspired by the idea of um, kind of new thalame, new forms of thalema. So um, mm -hmm. it's very influenced by the work of Kenneth Grant, but also the use of primary kind of um, Hindu and Taoist texts and things like that. So it's, it's a really interesting tradition, but it's also a non-tradition because anyone right. who, who tries to join it gets told not to bother um, and that it's a waste of time and uh, everyone's grumpy with each other and says it doesn't exist anymore. But within it, there, are, there, are, uh, there is a curriculum called Tantra Magic, which people can find online. And, um, and Mike McGee, had, with the help of Phil Hine, has recently produced some new books, which are really good. Of, of course, because Phil is very much into the Tantraic uh, yeah. um, system. And, yeah. yeah, he's engaging yeah, yeah. with it at quite a profound kind of scholarly yeah. level as well. Yes. But, but Mike has got a new book called Carly Magic out at the moment that's just come out. I, think mm -hmm. we, I reviewed it on the blog of Baphomet. Um, so th there are, so Amokos is interesting. And I think for me, probably reflects my own um, interest in kind of yogic, but also Western esoteric ideas and how these two have a conversation with each other. But is, is your work nowadays mostly solitary or is it still mostly relating to those groups? No, it's, it's almost entirely solitary now. Um, mm. um, it's partly because I'm an introvert and don't like parties um, and, and, mm. and, you know, and lots of occultists like parties <laughs> and uh, I'm not that person. Um, yeah, neither am I. <laughs> but, but also I think um, I really enjoyed being in the IOT for the time that I, that it was a very intense period of my life in terms of magical practice. Um, but I kind of felt like I got from it what I wanted and perhaps needed Um so yeah, so it was good, but um, I, I I tend to be to adopt a more kind of quietist approach to my practice. Um, you know, I, I I still I'm still doing ritual work, but it's probably in a quieter, more low key sort of way, um, and probably feeding into my writing to some extent. Um, right. Yeah, but which which kicks off exactly the point I wanted also to ask you about Zen Zen and you zen and chaos magic because i think zen 
is an important part to that last book of yours, to Chaos Monk, right? I, it's interesting that you see it that way, but I, I think you're right. I, I think, I think there's something for people who are, you know, know something about the history of Buddhism. Um, you know, Zen has its roots in Taoism. You know, and it, yeah. you know it, it was Chan Buddhism. Chan Buddhism in China was, you know, when the the, the Buddha Dharma came to China and kind of fused with Taoism. Um, and you know, when when Chan Buddhism went to Japan, it became Zen. Um, yeah, but it has a history of rebellious teachers and um, and strange koans, you know, strange sayings that don't seem to make sense, and a big emphasis on silent practice. Um, and so, uh, what's also interesting is when Austin Osman Spare was developing his ideas that were really central to the development of chaos magic later on. Um, he had this idea of Kia or, or spirit, um, which had for me lots of parallels with Taoism. Um, mm -hmm. so this idea of, um, a quietist kind of, um, a very open, uh, quite a sparse, um, form of practice, um, I, I think, you know, it, it's almost like from an alchemical perspective, you know, creating an alembic within the, within the self, mm. a space, mm. like going back to the idea of the grail, this kind of spaciousness inside the self. So, you know, in the same way that in, in most cosmologies, when the world is being born, it is within the Gananga gap or the primal void or, you know, whatever. Um, so the magician creates a void space within themselves, you know, so that microcosmically your great work emerges, it is created from that, um, right. that empty space. And I suppose that's, that's, perhaps chaos magic of a deeper nature that, that 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 chaos is from where your work emerges absolutely to me what you describe here this version of zen if i might call it like that mm. it relates kabbalistically uh, very much to that to the, the to, to the hidden because also related to the voice of course um, corporally and so silence is part of sound mm. uh, and uh, that is very much that what is to me at least probably meant by that and it relates to certain forms which i appreciate of the true will um, uh, to achieve that you need to be rebellious as you just mentioned those buddhist monks were very rebellious you need to be that in the first place to be to find your true will in the end right in the silence yeah uh, i think and i yeah. think the book talks a bit about um the difference between um, cataphatic theology, which can make assertions and make positive statements versus apophatic theology, which comes is used, especially in like the Eastern Orthodox church, where we, we talk about the things that we can't say about the mystery, you know? And so, so where, where, um, we, we can only point at the moon. We can, you know, we, we can only allude to what the mystery is rather than making big positive statements about it. And, and we encounter 
that through darkness, you know, through, we find the light through the darkness. Absolutely. When we talk about bridging East and West, I think in more in general, I have, I have asked that question to several of my guests because some of them had also that bridging within them. Um, but I, uh, I think we often overlook the history of Central Asia in, say, about eight, nine hundred years back when you mentioned Sufism earlier, um, when Sufism was not strong in the today Arabic countries, but in Central Asia, when Buddhism developed out of Bone from Tibet into the, uh, with the Chinese mix in the same area and the Hermetic part that had come over and stayed over from, from Hellenistic or Alexander the Great's times mm. in that same area of the world. This was an extraordinary melting pot. And they don't need to read Peter Kingsley to see that. Just read history, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I think the bridge can be made rather simply when you when we talk about history a little bit yeah we, in that part of the world which is mostly overlooked nowadays well i suppose the point you're making which is a, a a really good one is that these attempts at synthesis are not new these have been going on all the time you know and you know if you look at you know examples in history whether it's you know alexandria or toledo or, you know, where you have these melting yeah. pots of esoteric culture informing yes. and, and enriching each other. Yes. And very pragmatically, you know, in, in a very pragmatic form, they did those informing each other. They needed to. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I have to come back to one thing you said. Uh, maybe it's completely irrelevant. But um, before we go back to the to the book, I... I you said when you spoke about your partner and the, the tarot first encounter with tarot, um, that you were fearful, fearful at tarot hmm. in the first place. Can you explain that fear? Yeah. You I, had at the time back then? I think so. I, I think for me, how, coming from a very orthodox kind of Christian, even though I was only probably following that path for, 10 years of my life, it, it still was, it was during my adolescence. So it was very formative. Formative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the, for, that form of Christianity saw esoteric things as being very dangerous and, mm. and a gateway, which ironically was completely true. It was a gateway. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, but, sure. but, 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 you know, the, it was the work of the devil basically, you know, and, 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 and the, most of my friends from that time of my life would still think that, you know, and it's um, eating from the eating from the tree of uh, um, the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so for me, it definitely felt um, like a Faustian, a Faustian act, even beginning to learn that system and understand it. Um but, you know, the, it, it's really superficial because the moment you know anything about the tarot, you, you know that, you know, esoteric Christians um, and Kabbalistic, you know, hermetic Christians and theosophists are deeply, you know, deeply spiritual and deeply, and some of them are deeply Christian people, you know. So 
Um, there are lots of different ways of approaching it, but at the time it definitely felt like I was doing something taboo, but actually when I look at it now, I probably, I think as a magician, you, there are a number of gateways that one has to kind of negotiate in oneself. And sometimes we have to smash through something, you know, in Tantra, we talk about clashes or, or shells of, um, conditioning that sometimes we have to smash in order to, you know, kind of move to a next, a next phase of freedom. Right. Absolutely. Now back to your book, Chaos Monk. Um, uh, in that book, we find exercises, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, a kind of a developing exercises from, from easier to, well, a bit more complicated. Um, who is your book aimed at? Um, what do you want to achieve with it or who, what should the reader want to achieve with it when he gets into it? Yeah. Someone asked me this the other day. They said, you know, who do you write for? Do you write for beginners? And I, and I said, do you know what? I don't write for anyone and probably apart from myself, you know, I, 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 I think I start with a question of my own and often the books have kind of co coalesced over time. And, um, so I, I was definitely trying to explore this territory for myself and what it means for me, um, as an kind of esoteric person, as a magician. Um, I, 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 I do hope that I didn't see a lot written um, for magical practitioners that sort of brought in this quieter, simpler, um, or a valuing of that approach. And I suppose, you know, um, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss people, but when I see a lot of the kind of witches of Instagram stuff and, you know, all of the kind of more kind of flamboyant, performative, things, you know, which I think are really brilliant and, and that can be really helpful and are a part of someone's journey. I, I don't want to dismiss them, but at the same time, I don't want it just to be about a diet of that, you know? Um, and I think to, to be able to know that if I'm a quieter person, if I'm more of an introverted person or I'm more of a meditative person, I can explore these things as a, as a, a magician. I think I, I wanted to kind of try and articulate that and put some of the things like Abramelin and, and all these, and within a bit of a timeline. Um, so, yeah, so I think I was probably trying to do that for myself. And then as a, as a, a lucky byproduct it's helpful to somebody else that's great as well you know i kind of i you know i've had some nice feedback about the book people have enjoyed it already um which mm -hmm. i'm really pleased about um but my primary goal is always just to try and clarify my own thinking um, um well, i i hope that many more will read it when they hear this because it's really i can only recommend that to do that um i also feel it's a it's a way, a possible way um, to to work in the 21st century in an environment which is often uh, as opposed to the big uh, ceremonial magic stuff and even even as you say paganism witchcraft etc they uh, with a lot of props and and necessities etc and most of us sit 90 percent of their time 
in a small space in small apartments with maybe three kids running around and a dog and and uh, where do you place your ritual room there right and you uh, i think your book also helps to to propose solutions you know, everybody has to find their own solutions of course but to propose a way which is calmer which is neater which is more concentrated on the subject rather than on on the prop uh, now i'm nasty but i i think uh, i think you know what i mean right yeah I, I i do think it and you know um any any visitor to my house has to kind of uh see all the statues and the altars that are around my house but but they are they are just they are just focal points and they yeah. they, they are just they're just window dressing if if the practice and the intention and the quiet uh, and the connection to those things isn't real. Um, and I think there's a day, you know, Chogyung Trungpa very famously wrote about, you know, cutting through the spiritual materialism. And, and I think occultism can become, <laughs> you know, I've got lots of stuff in my house, you know, and, um, and I think we, we mustn't mistake um, the the outward symbols with the essence. Um, we need both. Right. You know, right. symbols are really important. You know, as Carl Jung said, you know, we need symbols, but but they they point us towards the inner experience, and that's what ultimately is is key. Reading books is good, especially the one that we're talking about. But um, then you have to do the work, and that's the essential. And not having twenty-eight other books about the same subject again, right? Right. Well, we all have. I know we all do that. Um, um, if we're unfortunately coming towards the end of our talk, so I am asking you now that we talked about your biography a lot. Um, where, as an occultist, would you? If you had to place yourself today, how would you define yourself as an occultist in 2022? Who are you as an occultist today? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think I'm a, a quietist. I am. I am a. I, I, I am probably as much a mystic or an aspiring mystic as I am a magician. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm. So, but I'm someone who hopefully values the whole of what I've gone through, what we've talked about today. So although my relationship with Christianity is very, very complicated, um, it's, it's not with, it's not that I hate it. You know, it, it's been a really important part of who I am. And, um, and similarly, uh, uh, you know, um, a lot of people who I work with, I'm quite, out at work about being, um, I think they just call me a spiritual weirdo. Um, uh, but, but, you know, they, they say, Oh, you know, you seem to be a Buddhist and you seem to be, uh, so, you know, so I suppose I'm, I'm someone, you know, I work in a healing profession and I'm trying to find, I'm still pursuing my own healing and that's an ongoing work. Um, and I'm trying to find the right tools that help me heal myself and my family and my life. So, uh, that's ongoing. Um, I think I, hopefully I've made some progress as I've become more honest about who I am as a human being. Um, but it's, it, the work is, uh, is, is always ongoing, isn't it?
Well, we wish you best of luck for that. And definitely we have seen in this interview that you are not a fucked up guy <laughs> being stated. Well, it was not meant seriously, of course, but as it was stated in that foreword I read in the beginning. So thank you for showing us that you are not. And um, any new books on the horizon that we should know about or any other projects that you want to tell us about? Um, no, I, I, I it's... Um it's felt like um, the, the first three books were written two years apart. So uh, I think the first one was in 2014. And then there was a four year gap between um, the heretics journey and this one. So um, I think I'm, I'm slowing down. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I will write um, as something bubbles to the surface, you know, um, I, I said to someone asked me that the other day and I said, I hope I don't have to write another book, but, but you never know. I, I you know, it's just, it's just as the work, um, brings it forth, you know, and, and we'll see where that gets to, but, um, no, I'm just enjoying being at the beach and enjoying doing my work and trying to find some balance. Um, and, and yeah, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. But if other things come alongside it, that's a bonus. Good. Well, we keep our fingers crossed. Let me finish that talk with your invitation to the book. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, when it's the book Chaos Monk opens like this, this is a call to come to the quiet, those spacious places of the deep self. This is a desert place found by the few and others may laugh and call your journey madness. Darkness is here and only the brave can see that it holds the most brilliant of lights. Come, come my friends, come sit with those who are seeking the other side of silence. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome, Rudolf. It's been a pleasure.
orchestra of the Kampagar Monastery playing for us Dorje Furba. And that was the last musical piece here today. Just, well, we have the outro music, of course, but the last musical piece in the program here today. And thank you very much to Steve D for being with us here today. Thanks, Steve. It was a great talk that we had and that quietness that you preach and which made was made very clear, I hope, also by the little poem I wrote at the end. I think something very important for our age to learn that also us, and especially us esotericists, occultists who practice all kinds of traditions, should be aware that this quieting down is much needed. Right? Okay, so that was the show for today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us here today. And, um, well, yes, I know you want to know what is going to happen next week. Well, we have another nice interview with Mona Sobani from California. Mona, who is actually a neuroscientist and who discovered, the, as she says, it's a subtitle of her book, actually, the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Ineffable, already one of my favorite words. And the title of the book we are going to talk about and which has been released recently is called Proof of Spiritual Phenomena. And when a scientist discovers that spiritual phenomena really exist that are being proven, that sounds exciting to me and that's why Mona Subani will be our guest next week. So I hope to have you back for that other episode, for that new episode next week, which will be on next Sunday and episode three, it will be off season nine. Thank you so much once again for listening today. Come back next week. And in the meantime, I hope you're going to have a interesting, a safe and exciting and powerful week. Come back next week. And in the meantime, take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.